Thanks for listening to the Roman Circus Podcast, a weekly dive into death-defying discussions of Catholic culture, tradition, and history. I'm Matt Baker, and with me, as always, is a man who also had to cheat to win the World Series, Zach Mabry. Zach, how are you, my friend? I'm I'm doing great. Feeling victorious. That's what you do. Uh, email us at Roman Circus Pod. Nope, that's Twitter at Roman Circus Pod. I'm at Hey, it's Matt Baker. Zach is at Zach Mabry. Z A C Mabry. The email is podcast at romancircusblog.com you can find us on patreon patreon.com slash romancircuspod if you have a second please go over to apple podcasts and leave us a review we always appreciate it you can find us wherever podcasts are all right zach we have a great conversation today with our friend spencer about the history of american catholicism yes we uh we say every episode that we talk about history um which we we do kind of um, but mm-hmm. now we're, you know, we, every year or so we do a full-blown history episode. So here's, you know, we, we're going to do part one of our conversation with, uh, with old Spence, Dr. To Squid. be fair, Zach, to be fair, everything we do, everything we talk about has happened in somewhat of the past. So it is always history. When That's we true. do the news, it is something that has happened. So yeah, we're very historical, but we also wanted to talk about actual history uh, so, and it's kind of a longish conversation, good conversation, but uh, we'll dispense with the the news. We'll leave that for Patreon and all that. But uh, yeah, uh, anything before we get into the episode, Zach? Um, yeah, I just wanted to say this podcast is being brought to you by Mike Bloomberg for president. Um, mm. If you're looking for somebody who can take on Donald Trump and unite the country, uh, Mike Bloomberg is our guy. Um, and our, uh, my Venmo is at Zach Mabry. Thank you. I was going to say, we're, uh, pay no attention to us driving brand new BMWs after making that announcement. It's just purely, a purely a coincidence. We truly believe in the Bloomberg campaign. Uh, it has nothing to do with all the free stuff that we got. Of course. This is about America. (laughs) all right all right just a quick note before we get into the interview there is a slight echo problem with zach and my audio and spencer's audio is all good and he's the one we're supposed to be listening to so it works out it shouldn't be too distracting just wanted to give you a heads up and say sorry about that and we'll uh, fix that in the future but these things happen all right let's do it zach we are are very 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 excited as you can tell in our voices, to be joined oh, by yeah, our we next are. guest, our our friend from the world of the internet. His name is Spencer, and he is at. Let me get this correct. Uh oh, where'd it go? At shiny new squid. Uh, yep, that's me. Spencer, who we know from Twitter, reached out to us yesterday and was like, "Hey, if you ever want to do an episode that people actually want to listen to." Uh, I can come on and we can talk about the history of Catholicism in America. And I thought, Zach, it'd be a nice change to go from episodes that nobody cares about to one that at least a couple people would show interest in. Right. Well, it's important that since we we always open with uh, talking about how we talk about Catholic history, that at least on an annual basis, we pay some mind to Catholic history. Um, Every once in a blue moon. 
Yeah. yeah. So just yeah. for the sake of the interview, do we... Is it, wait, is one it second. Spencer, one second, is it Spence? Yeah. Zach, wait, wait. Spencer, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, guys. I appreciate okay, it. Okay, so, now, Zach, continue. <laughs> All right. So for the for the show, is it is it Spencer? Is it Spence? Is it Squid? Is it Doctor Spence? Doctor Spencer. Uh, Doctor Squid. Spencer Squid works good. Okay. Or, you know, Doctor Squid. That's a good one too. Doctor Squid. Okay. So you're um one of your topics that you're you've researched and you are very familiar with obviously is American Catholic history. And so I think I think I have a pretty good grasp on it. So I'm gonna just do a real brief summary and then you can kind of tell me why I'm correct. So. American Catholicism started out like really, really good, and then it just kept getting better until the 1950s when it became perfect. And then there was this gang of gay communists who swooped in and uh, infiltrated the church and turned it super bad, and it's been really bad ever since. Is that about? Is that about right? They swooped in fabulously, Zach. Don't forget that. Right. They like, like they sailed down, down on Mary Poppins umbrellas. <laughs> um, is is that I mean I'm I'm pretty right, right? Yeah, I mean that's pretty spot on. You you got it. You know, we can just go ahead and end the whole thing right here cuz I think you you stole all my thunder for the interview. Sorry, you know. I tend to do that to people. Yeah, it's okay. You're famous. I'm not. So True. Zach, I am. You're famous. Okay, yeah. I know. So so that <laughs> let's talk about that cuz it it is. Yeah, this is actually legitimately something we've never really discussed with another person on this podcast. So, so yeah, like let's go back to. I guess where do you think is a good point of origin? Like, where's a good beginning point? Yeah, so I guess a good beginning point would be you know the sixteen, the late sixteen hundreds, early seventeen, or you know, the colonial era of you know what would become the United States. Um, and so, obviously. There's a large Catholic history in other areas of what would become the United States because of Spanish imperialism and colonization and you know, the, now the American Southwest. But in the Anglophone Americas, you know, what would become the United States, it really starts in the 16 and 1700s in uh, Maryland when Lord Baltimore establishes a colony. Uh, and Lord Baltimore is some you know, famous English aristocrat, aristocrat but he is Catholic, and so the they colony, just name him after the town. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. You know, they uh, the town's built, and they're like, hey, you know, we should name uh, name this guy after the town. Uh, and so they name Maryland. Uh, you know, it's Mary's land in honor of you know, Queen Mary of England. Um, and so Maryland actually has religious toleration for Catholics, um, which is very rare in the early American colonies because so this is like the like colonial, colonial period. period right right okay yeah and it's very rare because uh, as you well know that period of English history and of American history is uh, virulently anti-catholic and you know the whole reason sure. the Puritans uh, the pilgrims came over to you know Massachusetts and all that is because they believed that the Anglican Church was too close to Catholicism and they wanted to purify it but they were unable to do that and so they got kicked out of england and came to the americas to do that um it's amazing to look at i saw somewhere about like american religious history the number of sort of protestant utopia societies that people tried to build um all throughout and that there was like this tendency to just keep doing that like keep breaking off and starting something perfect and like untainted by you know Catholicism or Anglicanism or whatever, whatever unpure like influence 
would catch up to it eventually. And somewhere there's a map that shows like each dot of like each little one. Um, yeah, that stuff really pops off in the like the uh, 1820s and 1830s, and you get like Mormonism, but you also get all these other kind of utopian cults, which are get really weird and don't last very long. But uh, it's definitely so. Those were later. Those, those popped, popped up, up, I guess, later then. Yeah, those popped up later. But Puritanism is more or less in, in somewhat of a strain, um, similar to that. I know if my advisors and professors heard me saying that, they might you know, you know, they might get really mad at me and say, "No, that's wrong." Blah 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 blah. But uh, for the most part, yeah, the Puritans wanted to create this new Jerusalem kind of utopian vision, city on a hill thing, in mm-hmm. Massachusetts, and that would go on well, to nobody warned them clearly. Yeah, clearly, uh, and so that influences that has a huge influence on American political culture. This idea that the United States or what become the United States is to be, you know, it's supposed to be Protestant and it's supposed to be you know, Republican in character, you know, meaning there's some uh, level of equality or egalitarianism between people, you know, there's really no high, there's not a lot of hierarchy, et cetera, et cetera. And so the Puritan idea of what it means to be an American is one that is often at odds with the Catholic faith. And so Catholics, and this is really, reality, but right. And sure. Yeah. And this is kind of a trend this is, I guess, not so much a trend, but the broad sweep of U.S. Catholic history is Catholics trying to show that they belong in America. Um, and that okay. can lead to some issues, which we'll see down the road. Yeah, because, yeah. I mean, to me, and I don't, I don't, I don't mean I don't, to sound like, sound like a, a, you know, a Chester bro type, but, like, I don't really think America's ever really escaped the core kind of Puritan mindset. Obviously, it's not applied in the same way and the aesthetic is different, but, like, the, the, the sort of desire to like break off and start fresh at every turn and then just the way of evaluating things in sort of puritan terms i feel like that's still how like every movement plays out in the u.s or at least to a certain degree right right definitely and so the early church in america in maryland um believe so some of this i have to talk in broad generalities um, sure. Yeah, it's because I don't. Well, want we can't to just go through like every family, and obviously there were going to be different. Yeah, you kind of have to find trends. So yeah. No right. Worries. Yeah, and I can't, you know, get bogged down in the. We're like, like not all Puritans with the claps and <laughs> Can't yeah, can't get do- get bogged down in the specifics of you know like every plenary council of Baltimore or whatever or, or every single archbishop. But I'll try and get into the specifics. You know where sure. I can, what I'm you know most comfortable with. Yeah, just but, stereotype is right. kind of what we do. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so. Generally, the U.S. church in Maryland is very different than what, you know, the U.S. Catholic church will become. Because in Maryland, it's the most of the Catholics there are English. Um, okay. And they are of a pretty well-off uh, social class. And so a lot of them are, you know, merchants. You know, they're well-off merchants. They're slaveholders, um, you know. You know, because they're slaveholders, they'll, you know, they have plantations where they get tobacco and they trade in that. And so they're, you know, pretty high up in society. And they have a version of Catholicism where the laity have a, because of their wealth, have a decent amount of control over church property. And I think in some cases, you know, the congregations actually own the chalices that the priests use um, and all wow. of that. And so, is there is that a carryover at all from just the the situation of Catholicism in England when you know the 
it was like hide the priest type stuff and the the laity's involvement was sort of necessitated by the fact that you couldn't be a priest in public and you know masses were said in the homes of wealthy lay people and uh, yeah yeah i definitely think that has something to do with it and also you know the the wealthier you are the better chances you have of being able to be catholic in england at the time you're able to hide it better you're able to have you have access to resources that you know a poor person within the lady uh might not have and so right. that so it's and so that character kind of comes over and then and so their idea of what it was a somewhat Republican church. And by that, I mean, I obviously don't mean, you know, our big R GOP, you know, I don't exactly see a, a Catholic colonial version of Donald Trump walking around, even though that'd be a kind of a hoot and a half, but, uh, right. But yeah. sort of a laicized world by the elite type situation. Right. Right. And their type of Republicanism is what you see from like the Virginia colonial elite, like Thomas Jefferson and George Washington um, right, those type of guys where, you know, it's not exactly democrat. It's sort of democratic, but not really. Um, and the, the elites have a, these kind of disinterested uh, gentlemen planters have a lot of say. Um, and then, and so parliamentary you, Catholicism, right, right. And so you have that, you know, House of Lords type thing. So you have that, okay. and then what happens? You start to see more. You, you see, it starts out gradually. You have immigration by Catholics from other uh, places, specifically Ireland. Um, and so this story of the history of U.S. Catholicism is in many ways a story about Irish Catholics um, and Irish-American Catholics. Um, and so I once did a Twitter thread on this, and like you said, some people snitch-tagged a certain uh, doctor into it, but uh, other people accused me of being bigoted against the Irish I want to mm-hmm. say, well, I'm not bigoted against the Irish, just Irish Americans, but that's neither. And I, I mean, it's uh, hard to read history and, and not come not out with a certain amount of bigotry towards the Irish, but right. um, I mean, you know. Uh, okay, so I think what we're saying here is that there's sort of like a second wave Catholicism. Like the first wave is the um, the wealthy English Catholics who basically find Maryland as a place of where they can be Catholic without all the baggage that comes with being Catholic in Britain. And the church kind of takes on a certain character based on those circumstances. Yes. And then second wave is the arrival of the, the Irishman. Right. And so the Irish, the wave of Irish immigration starts out very slow and, you know, the 18 teens. It doesn't take many. Right. (laughs) And the 18 teens and the 1820s, it's, very, uh, it's a slow amount, but there's still, um, as the United States is growing and there's land available, um, and then you know labor is needed, uh, especially in the 1820s and 30s as the United States begins to build canals such as the Erie canals and all these internal improvements. They need cheap labor to do it, and the Irish are willing to do that. And so uh, you see the growth, start to see growth of Irish communities in places like New York, especially. You see Boston, but also importantly, uh, you see the growth of a Catholic community in Charleston, South Carolina. Um, and there becomes a really important bishop who gets placed in Charleston, uh, bishop, kind of ironically enough, uh, John England. And so he's Irish. And he is a... Wait, John England is Irish? Yes, yes. It's pretty funny. Um, I'm going to have to write this down. Now I've heard everything. <laughs> yeah, and so he sets up this Catholic, the first national Catholic newspaper um, and his express purpose with it is to defend the Catholic faith from, you know, American Protestants who are attacking it. 
because during this time you see a lot, well, maybe not a lot, but you see a general skepticism of, of Catholics from American Protestants. And they argue, it's really an argument they have for a while, they argue that, you know, Catholicism is antithetical to American democracy. You know, Catholics have a despotic or tyrannical religion uh, where they're basically ruled by the Pope, who's a monarch. Um, they take their orders from their priests and bishops, um, that kind of stuff. And they even accuse, some people even accuse Bishop England of being a Jesuit because the Jesuits are seen as this great evil force that uh, infiltrates countries and responds directly to the Pope. Um, so would like, that it were so. Yes, would <laughs> that it were so. When I, I'm, I, when I, sometimes when I read this anti-Catholic discourse, I'm like, man, I wish it was like that. Uh, well, and that's know, what that's I would I would want to say. Or, yeah, go on, Matt. I was just going to say, when when they were talking about, they're like, these these people, all they do is obey their priests and bishops. My first thought was exactly that. Like, I wish, I wish that they, that we were what they said we were. Right, exactly. And so they. Well, choose- and I, I do think that obviously Catholicism, uh, uh, you know, at least at the time, because this is before a lot of the chaos, it was pretty understood that Catholicism did propose, you know, a, a political order that that had the church heavily involved. Um, as as a you know a political power with coercive authority and so i part of me wonders like how off base was the critique that catholicism was antithetical to american democracy i mean i'd say maybe not within like the u.s like the uh, actual vatican hierarchy as we'll see a little bit later on with uh pope Pius ix though old pio nono but mm-hmm. for the most part U.S. Catholics go out of their way to try and prove that they can be good democratic Americans. And that's something that Bishop England does a lot of. Uh, the way he structures the church in Charleston um, is somewhat similar to the aristocratic church in Maryland, but uh, not not quite as much. Um, it's much more democratic than Republican in character. Um, and so... Bishop England goes on to have a very large influence on the character of the U.S. church. He's kind of seen as one of the premier Irish clerics and all the others come over uh, because of him or they, you know, kind of come from him intellectually, if that makes sense. Um, Yeah. Then you also start to see, interestingly, you know, eventually the U.S. buys Louisiana. And so Louisiana, of course, has a large Catholic population. And that'll cause some issues. We're talking about the Louisiana Purchase? Yes, correct. Okay, so we get, like, Louisiana and the whole middle, like, all, like, most of flyover country. Yeah, basically for, you know, whatever change, you can get out the couch cushions, more or less. Yeah, it was, I think it was 15 million at the time. Yeah, which is just, yeah. But thinking back to U.S. history, which at the time was not very much money. Right, exactly. It's like, how many, like, one... Not like now, like, 15 million, like, (laughs) imagine. How many one, like... like, yeah, how many like one? Yeah, like, give me two, please. Yeah, like how many one one thousandths or whatever of that is uh, of uh, Michael Bloomberg? Is that? Yeah. Right. Yeah, my, Mike Bloomberg, good guy. Yeah, it's like if if Mike <laughs> if you took Mike Bloomberg's sixty billion dollars, whatever it is, and put him in eighteen oh three, what couldn't he buy? Like, so true. Thing. Yeah. Um, I wonder what that would. I wonder if we did like reverse. Uh, inflation like where we'd even land it like what what he'd be worth back then it'd still be probably i don't know yeah so you mean like deflation yeah Yeah. well if (laughs) if we just like 
not deflation. What is I? If we just calculated in like what year? Dollar, like what his? What year was that Louisiana purchase? Eighteen oh three. I still don't know if we got our money's worth purchasing Louisiana, but um, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. It's it's lovely down there. Um, what if they inflate, and they, they don't even have cal- counties. They have, what? The inflation calculator. I I don't even know. It's like thirteen digits, is whatever Bloomberg would be worth. I don't know. Back then? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Anyway, that's I'm a. Still, that, I'm still working on digit yeah. number eight. Yeah. That's a. Um, that's a tangent. What, yeah. What are, okay. So. So yeah. So Bishop England Louisiana is Catholic because I, I, Louisiana is interesting. I mean, I, this is really trivial. On I'm, I'm sure as a as a as an academic guy, you, you but like Louisiana is organized into parishes, not like counties and stuff. So like as it is it is different as far as like even now you're not in like such and such county you're in you know st charles parish um so anyway go on yeah so bishop england he has a you know rather large influence on american catholicism and kind of the argument he makes is that no catholics can be good american citizens we can be virtuous people um, you know, we can participate fully in American democracy, yada, yada, yada. You know, he, he co-ops a lot of the Protestant rhetoric about what makes a good citizen and uses it for Catholicism. Says, you know, oh, Catholics can do this too. You know, the Catholic religion is perfect for this. Um, he also, unfortunately, has a lot of other uh, negative influences, and particularly, and this is some stuff I study, uh, particularly when it comes to Catholics and slavery because in 1839, Pope Gregory, I forgot which one, I think it was Gregory the 11th? Let's see. 16th. Yeah, so Pope Gregory, yeah, oh wow, it is 16th. Pope Gregory the 11th was in. The you sound surprised. Yes, I am surprised. Um, so Pope Gregory issues this papal bull uh, that I can't remember the name of right now. Um, it is in Supremo Apostolos or something like that. Let's see. Anyway, so he issues this papal bull, which basically, which outlaws slavery, more or less, and the slave trade. Um, Right. And so, especially, he says, you know, you can't participate in the slave trade. And so, Bishop England reads it as, oh, he just means the transatlantic slave trade, which has already been outlawed. (laughs) And so, I read it somewhere, but I'm not 100% sure if it's true or not. That it's funny Americans uh, have that tendency to uh, to to subject kind of the things the Pope says to their own sort of esoteric reading that lets them keep doing what they want to keep doing. But yeah. anyway, yeah. So on. the papal bull was in supremo apostol apost. Oh, I can't pronounce Latin. Anyway, so neither yes. can Matt or I. So it's yeah. pretty, Matt's the one that ends up yeah. having to try. So mm-hmm. yeah. And so he basically bans Catholic participation in the slave trade. But Bishop England basically okay. hand waves it away by saying, no, he really just meant the transatlantic slave trade. And it may or may not have been that different translations of the papal bull were circulated in the U.S. than in uh, elsewhere, than the more official ones. And so <clears throat> he's saying, no, Catholics can still own slaves and participate in the domestic slave trade, just not the international one. Um, so that was okay. one of his big So it's kind of like luck of the Irish says to carry on. Right, right. And so... Throughout the 1820s and 30s, you start to see more and more Irish immigrants 
come to the United States. And so they start to settle basically all over the place, particularly in the Northeast and in the Midwest. So you see large Irish Catholic communities in New York and Boston. Boston is actually small for a decent amount of time, but then you have Philadelphia, you have Cincinnati, and you start to get other kind of Midwestern cities as well. And so you see the many of the priests and the bishops in particular who come over and meet mm-hmm. with and to you know, minister to the lady there to become uh, you know become the bishops and whatnot. They are Irish. Uh, so you have Bishop England, you have John Hughes, who has a very cool nickname of uh, Dagger John. So you have Dagger John I like in New that. York. You have uh, Bishop. Did Finwick. he stab someone? Uh, I'm not sure. So okay. I, I think he's They're called Dagger John because he could uh, get a really vi- not violent, but he would uh, very proudly defend the Catholic faith openly um, oh, okay. if attacked. On like, he basically said something. Online? Yeah, he basically said something like, "If you would try to take down the church in New York, we're going to burn the city to the ground." Oh, that's fantastic! That's beautiful. Yeah. Right. So then you also have Bishop Purcell in Cincinnati. You have Bishop Fenwick, who was in Baltimore and Cincinnati. You have Bishop Spalding. Um, and all of these guys are Irish. And so Irish immigration really becomes the wave builds up and then becomes basically a tsunami in the late 1840s after the Irish potato famine happens. And so you see this mass exodus of people from Ireland to United States. And so what you have is by 1860, Catholicism is actually the largest denom- religious denomination in the United States. Okay, which it's it's continues to be that. Um, as far as it, I mean, assuming that you define denominations in like in terms of like how they register themselves. Um, so at at this point, was Catholicism like synonymous with? being Irish like was I mean I understand there were other groups that were Catholic to some number but I mean was it in America was it sort of this is the Irish religion or did it have was it broader than that uh I'd say somewhat somewhat of both but for the most part it is kind of seen as you know the Irish religion and so that's what I was wondering like are the bishops sort of seen as like the Irish like not patriarchs, but like they're kind of the leaders with of within the Irish community, to borrow today's terms, and and not as interested in the like much up, you know, like is, is that? Yeah, no, I'd say I definitely say that's accurate, and that's something you see that starts in this period, but really becomes big in the next few decades, particularly, and that's when the main issues that the U.S. Church has by the 1950s is that in many ways. Irish bishops are more or less de facto ward bosses in some areas. Um, there's actually a really cool history book that just came out that I want to get, but it is unfortunately like 60 bucks. Um, it's called Ireland's Empire, the Roman Catholic Church in the English-speaking world, 1829 to 1914 by Colin Barr. Um, it's basically how not only in the United States but also in Australia and in Canada and, and even in India, uh, the Irish actually become the he- take over more or less the Catholic Church in those areas. They supply a ton of the priests and they supply mm-hmm. a lot of the uh, higher ranking hierarchy. Okay. That's, yeah, I think that's important history. Because um, obviously there's about to be, 
more Catholics showing up of the non-Irish variety, if I recall from history class. Right, right. And so interestingly, so in the 1840s and 50s, what you see also is a sizable German Catholic population come over. And so because, or let me backtrack. So during the 1840s, late 1840s especially, but during the 1850s too, you see a lot of conflict with non between Catholic Americans and non-Catholic Americans. You have the rise of something known as nativism. Um, and nativism and anti-Catholicism are often so intertwined that historians kind of conflate the two um, because they think it's the nativism in many cases is directed towards the Irish. And since the Irish are Catholic, um, that's kind of why it gets conflated. And this is the era when you see things like no Irish need apply signs in stores or in businesses throughout the Eastern. So I've heard that that like didn't really happen or did it? The uh, Nina stuff. Yeah. Like how, like how many times, like how often there were like no Irish need apply songs or signs. Not particularly sure, but the kind of anti-Irish and anti-Catholic. Right. And that was something I was, a lot of times when I do hear, when people talk about anti-Catholicism, I'm like, so is this a, a you know, is it is it starting from a, a distrust of the Catholic religion or is it a, you know, a beef between, you know, different, you know, racial groups essentially um, and the Irish, the you know, the other races, religion is Catholic, so catholic is other too like how much of it is like you know which comes first right yeah and historians have been actually somewhat divided on it i think what you see in the 1850s um is a we don't want you know non-americans here we don't want immigrants here um that's what you see a lot with the nativists who are also known as the know nothing party uh, because mm -hmm. they would form secret organizations uh, before the party kind of came out in the open so they formed secret organizations, and if you were questioned about it, you were supposed to say, I don't know anything. And so you were called a know-nothing. Um, and they were very, they were for the most part anti-immigrant, even uh, anti-immigrant towards Protestant immigrants. Um, but there were some who were just specifically anti-Catholic. Um, but before they kind of came to power in the 18, like 1854 and 1855, you still mm -hmm. had a strong anti-Catholicism in the U.S. that was not all about you know, anti-immigrant, it was anti-Catholic because you have kind of a couple... And this of goes back to like being antithetical to Republican values, like lowercase r? Yeah, yeah. So you kind of have this, you have a couple of strains of anti-Catholicism. You have First one, wave, second wave? Yeah, so like you have one that's anti-Catholic on religious grounds. So this is like really the Puritans who are, you know, saying oh, we don't like Catholicism. This is born out of the Reformation. Oh, you know, Luther was right. We don't like Catholicism. It's a fa mm -hmm. false religion. You know, they'll say horrible things about the Pope and all of that. But then you have the other one, which I think you mentioned, Zach, the one, the kind of political anti-Catholicism, where they say, we don't have a problem with, you know, Catholics. They'll say, quote, we have a problem with, and the term they use is political Romanism. Um, oh, okay. And so they, I was like, isn't like papist or papy kind of become like a... Yeah, but yeah, that makes sense. Political Romanism. Right. And so they they see the problem with with the church being kind of the church's hierarchy, and that the pope has kind of worldly power in Rome. And they, but in many ways, I think these are tied together because it's hard because they even though they everything have, kind of becomes a coalition eventually. I think right, so, um, right. There tends to blend, but it does seem like so. There's first, like you're saying, there's kind of the 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 idea, like the 
the ideas that Catholicism propose. But then there's also just the, well, we're us and they are Catholic. That's their religion. And so it kind of sort of different motivations. Right, exactly. And so this leads to a ton of conflict in the 1840s and 1850s because while there's a tendency to view among, you know, historians and non-historians to view you view United view the United States as completely separate from Europe, what's happening in Europe during the late 1840s and the 1850s has a huge impact on Protestant Catholic relations. And what I really mean is the revolutions in Europe of 1848 and the Italian Revolution that tried to unite right. Italy and depose the Pope, basically. And so, right. so, so this, this was when the, the papal states were being stolen from the church by kind of the Italian version of Freemasons. Right. And so, in, and then fleeing yeah. uh, freedom and democracy or whatever, a lot of the Catholics came to America. At least that's kind of how our priest phrased it. He's like, so many of these Catholics that ended up in America were fleeing revolution. Right. That's why you get and, a lot of German Catholics coming over in this time. But also, you see uh, a lot of, like the Jesuits are expelled from Switzerland and a lot of them come to the United States. And you also see uh -huh. a lot of French priests come over as well um, who leave after their revolution. And during this time you have, and since it's invoked now, you have the development of, oh, I'm gonna mispronounce this, but uh, Ultramontanism. Um, Ultramontanism, and, yeah. Yeah, where it places, you know, the Pope basically places a whole, a whole lot of power in the Pope's hands. Um, and so this right. unites, you know, the church. This, that is a position that I, I espouse, by the way. So, um, right, right. Just for just for those who listen to, I'm always talking about ultramontanism. Here's some good history of what I'm talking about. Right. And so the U.S. Church becomes decidedly ultramontanist in character. And so there's a re one really good book that talks about this in detail uh, about the quote unquote Roman question is the late Peter D'Agostino's book Roman America. Um, and so Americans, both Catholic and Protestant, are hyper-concerned with what's happening in Europe and specifically in Italy. And so Pope Pius, actually, uh, Pius IX is actually celebrated by non-Catholic Americans, even some who had been you know, virulently anti-Catholic. He's celebrated mm -hmm. by them when he becomes Pope because he's viewed as a reformer. You know, he does institute a number of reforms in the Papal States, particularly lifting restrictions on Jews, um, and there are some, some Italian revolutionaries, or rather Italian nationalists. He was like expected to be a liberal. Right, exactly. He's seen as this great liberal reformer. Um, and Gregory. And again, was back not then, liberal him. doesn't mean what we mean now. Like, liberal doesn't mean licensed to have every different type of sex. Like, I mean, it, it does always boil down to that. But, like, at the time, it's talking about, like, you know, leading towards a sort of separation of church and state, yeah, political free thought. Kind of, and, yeah, like classical liberalism. Right. And so. There's these Italian nationalists, somewhat moderate Italian nationalists, who want to, you know, they're looking for a way to unite the Italian peninsula, and they decide mm -hmm. they want to do it under Pius IX. Like, Pius will be the symbol of unification, so Italy will... Interesting. Right. And so, what happens is, he's elected in 1846 or 1847, um, and then in 1848, these revolutions start to break out. And so, the Italian nationalists throughout the peninsula decide, okay, we're going to go kick the Austro-Hungarian Empire, or that time the Austrian Empire, we're going to kick them out of Italy because the Austrians are occupying northeast Italy. Uh, and so in order to unite the peninsula, you have to kick them out. Well, mm -hmm. Pius has an army that marches up towards the border with Austrian Italy, um, and the 
I think it was actually a priest who was in charge of the army. But regardless, he tells the person in charge of the army, no, you're not going to engage. And so Pius has this long public letter about it where he says, I still want Italy to be unified, but I don't want to get into a war with a Catholic nation over it. And so, you know, this is actually, I think, a pretty good path Pius takes, but it's interpreted horribly. Kind of. I mean, I, I think it's just the idea of Italy is just such a, like, it just seems so ahistorical to, to say that, like, the Italian peninsula and Sicily constitute a nation state, but go on. No, right. No, I agree. Yeah, Italians are... Uh, very different so like my wife's family is from southern italy and so they are uh very different than say people from milan or what have you but anyway right i mean it, it just seems odd. like it, yeah. yeah go on uh so yeah pius is trying to take a non-violent path to unification which you know you'd like to see the pope preach non-violence but the italian nationalists take this horribly and so they turn they think pius has betrayed them and so italian so you're saying that the nationalists they, they were uh, they were supporting the church when it was doing what they wanted it to do, and then as soon as it wasn't doing what they wanted, they turned against it. Right. So within, that's what the yeah, nationalists were doing. So it's interesting. Yeah, so, have, so that's one example of nationalists doing that. Uh, I wonder. I wonder if that's a, a tendency among nationalists. <laughs> you, do you think it might be? Maybe just a little. Anyway, maybe. Yeah. So you had them. Sorry, go on. Yeah, so the moderate nationalists were the guys who really supported Pius, but then the more radical nationalists wanted Italy to be a republic and didn't weren't a huge fans of the pope anyway anyway so this is when Pius gets kicked out of rome and so all the while this is going on u.s catholics and u.s protestants are talking about how great the italian revolution is but it's and what's funny there's actually a report from a, a catholic newspaper in boston when news hasn't reached them yet that Pius has been kicked out of rome but it's already happened but they're still praising how you know great and glorious the italian revolution is but as soon, it's one of those like this tweet did not age well right exactly moments. or like a do you defeat Truman type thing. Um, and so as soon as the United States finds out what's happening in Italy, the, the U.S. Catholics turn against the revolution. And so you have this big kind of ideological divide between U.S. Protestants and U.S. Catholics over what's happening in Rome. Um, and so this during this time, and I think you touched upon it earlier, Zach, you have... So the papacy will say certain things, like Pius IX issues, you know, the Silvus Aurorum and all this other stuff, like, oh, you know, you can't participate in democracy and all these things you can't do as a Catholic. And so U.S. Right. Catholics are telling the papacy, oh, oh, no, like our democracy is very different than Italian liberal democracy. So you're not actually condemning, when you condemn that, you're not actually condemning us. So we can totally participate in and, it. And I do think that there's, to some degree, like there is a difference in European republicanism, which was explicitly and directly like anti-clerical, anti like opposed to the church, and American republicanism, which just sort of ignored that it existed at all. Not necessarily better or worse, but they are different things. I was like, you're not directly like to the face opposing the church as an American with republican ideals, it, but. Obviously, in France and Italy and other places, that's directly what you're doing. Right, and right. so you right, and so you have you know they tell the papacy that, and they turn around and tell Americans like, oh, Pius is talking about something far worse. He's not condemning the United States; he's condemning something evil. And so they're able to kind of like 
give both sides doing what they're doing right because they still want to prove that they're americans and this continues for up until probably the post-war era um and you also see catholics during this time um they in this it has a huge impact on the way they view slavery um and abolitionists because the abolitionists align themselves with many european revolutionaries and so they that's interesting i didn't know that right and so because Abolition was just seen as another form of reform. Revolution. Right. Or, and reform. Right, okay. reform. And so they're very involved in, you know, temperance movements and women's suffrage and all this type of stuff like that. You know, all these reform movements to improve people. And so they align themselves gotcha. with European revolutionaries. But U.S. Catholics see that as, oh, they're taking sides against the Pope. We can't be friends with them. Uh, and so this leads to a lot of bitter feelings between the two groups and so by the time the civil war rounds there's only one major u.s bishop who comes out in favor of you know immediate emancipation because most right bishops in the well and i mean this that's the deal with the civil war is i mean it, it most civil wars don't have a line that you can draw like on a map and say what was one side and what was the other side and i, I think most people just defaulted to where they were geographically with their position on slavery and where they fell and where their loyalties fell. Um, the, the noted exception being my family, who uh, lived in a slave state and fought for the Union, um, you know, very brave. But for the most part, most people just like, if you're in the North, where slavery had not been profitable and had fallen out of favor, and then they eventually developed a moral stance against it, that was your stance. And if you were in the South, where like your whole economic model was based off of it, and it you had, you know, rewritten scripture to support you know i mean mm-hmm, right to me it's geographical like you can't really just hold all these people accountable for holding the position that everybody around them held well so like sort of so like with kind the northern of. okay maybe not okay. yeah <laughs> so the northern bishops they take this line of we condemn slavery in the abstract but we don't like the abolitionists and they support the union war effort because they want to show that they're good patriotic americans okay but they think ultimately they want peace to occur um and they're really not so sure about you know freeing the slaves um and one of the things throughout the antebellum era you see particularly from uh bishop john hughes uh dagger john in new york is this idea that the slavery question in the united states is political not moral uh, which I obviously disagree with, but their That's, argument is it, so they're personally they're they're personally anti-slavery, but politically pro-choice. Right? Is this like an iteration of that? I I think so. Like, I, yeah, I think to an extent they're saying, oh, it's the law of the land. You know, we have to show that. They, we're they still, basically this comes. This is my like cocktail party theory of like they still want to be invited to cocktail parties, so they have to like reconcile. They have to to basically go along with whatever's happening right and then give this kind of but in my heart i'm anti-slavery right and they're like it's not my place to right at a time when the u.s church is overall pretty poor and immigrant and facing strong nativist you know our anti-catholic feelings from you know the majority of the population they want to take a line that we're good americans and so that's why they they kind of delegate slavery to this political era or arena and they're saying we don't and so the bishops say we don't talk about politics because that was actually one of the criticisms. Cringe. That's so cringe. That was one of the, wait, uh, wait, repeat, repeat that line. 
so the U.S. bishops during the Antebellum era yeah. relegated slavery to the arena of politics, and they made the argument, we only talk about morality, we don't talk about politics. Yikes. Yeah. And so like one physically of... physically yeah. painful to me. And so, because one of the criticisms of Catholics at this time, I think I mentioned it before, was that basically the bishops told people how to vote. And so that was one of the nativist fears that there's going to be this massive voting block of people who are going to vote all how they're told to do and ultimately the person which has never materialized in america right ultimately the person pulling the strings on it's going to be no the the pope who's foreign this is like the papal octopus octopus. right right yeah Yeah. more or less and so and it's important i think to also recognize that like there was no concept that like when people came from italy to america that was sort of the birth of italian identity at least in my read of history but there wasn't any sort of okay well i'm you know american you know of of some other type of like there wasn't any idea that like irish people and non-irish europeans were like the same thing like they weren't part of the sort of white like if we're saying that there was like a dominant white culture like italians were not white according to white people at the time like in until like the 40s um of like the 1940s so i mean the I think that's also important, too, that, like, the foreignness of the Pope, like, he wasn't considered part of the same anything. Right, yeah, he was a foreign menace. And so a couple other things that are I'll briefly touch upon um, so I can get out of the Annabelle era, but the, one of the big fights that U.S. Catholics have is over schools because school public schools are seen as they're all, they're all the vogue, all the rage in this era. They're seen as a way to ensure good, honest, virtuous citizens, which is how, you know, democracy survives through good, honest, virtuous citizens. You know, that's the argument. And so the the public schools, they teach religion and the Bible they use is the Protestant Bible. And so Catholics pick up on that and they don't want to send their kids to public schools because of that. They want to send their kids to private schools or to parochial schools. And so Catholics try to get public support for the parochial schools. um, And this causes anti-Catholic backlash in some areas um and another also this is really horrible is that u.s catholics develop particularly the irish in this era develop a very they become almost come out say they become pretty racist towards african americans because they view it's one of those cases of you know rather than viewing something along class lines like oh our low wages and stuff like that isn't because uh, our lack of work isn't because of bosses it's because of whether it be immigrants or in this case is african-americans you know free blacks who are willing to take cheaper work or cheaper wages so they turn against african-americans and the most notorious case is during the civil war the draft riot um in new york city that results in a number of lynchings and the burning of a you know black orphanage because catholics Especially Irish. Is the idea here that the Irish Irish have now been like admitted to the dominant culture at like somehow and they're now able to be like, okay, well, we like, I'm just wondering on that line because obviously, again, they they were not within that and then eventually they they merge with that. And then is is that part of how they turn against American blacks or what? Yeah, so that's part of it. So there's this big kind of historical argument that eventually the Irish become white and part of that way is through race. Um, so rather, so they turn against African Americans, and so that kind of mm-hmm. other, and so that kind of brings them into the quote unquote the white camp. So now the Irish are considered white, 
Um, and you see kind of these race riots in Catholic communities like Cincinnati, uh, Philadelphia, I think, in New York especially. You know, they get mad about, they're scared, and the bishops kind of agree with them, unfortunately. You know, the laborers think that, oh, all these, you know, freed blacks, you know, freed slaves, you know, they're like going, great migration right they're going to type cut, thing okay yeah yeah during the during, they're like you know we can't free the slaves because if they do they're all going to move up north and you know in south park parlance going to take your gerbs um as the irish like we're going to be okay. out of work so rather than you know, being like hmm, it's a rite of passage of every ethnic group that that comes to america after america's founding to um be uniquely horrid towards american blacks like every single like it, it you could i mean it, it's it's really sad yeah um but it, it's interesting like it, it somehow it happens once they hit there's like a critical mass of like whatever group has showed up where they turn against the blacks and it it's unfortunate i mean it, yeah so you know that's kind of one of the great tragedies of u.s catholic and history during the Bohm era is that you know rather than seeking solidarity with the reformers like abolitionists and with you know because a lot of irish you know immigrants a lot of catholic immigrants lived in horrible working conditions in the north you know rather than seeking solidarity with them you know because of that rather than seeking solidarity with you know free with free black with free african-americans right. or with the slaves their shared their shared struggle with like fellow workers right so yeah rather than that they turn you know rather than viewing things in class they view things in race and they develop somewhat of a you know you know, white supremacist attitude or sort of some racial chauvinism that in this kind of... Approach. Right. And They've been like, white for like five minutes, but now they're white supremacists. Right. And so this kind of takes a... You know, this, this is something that you see not not so much like a hallmark, but kind of is like a tendency among this kind of chauvinism about Irishness um, comes kind of a hallmark, unfortunately, within the Catholic Church in the U.S. Uh, throughout. So that's the Annabelle era. Um, and so what happens is that you've gotten this huge wave of Irish immigration and they've, they're trying to make the argument that we fit in American society and there's still a lot of skepticism towards them. Um, you'll see that flare up again in the 1920s and the 19 teens when the Ku Klux Klan comes back. Um, and Woodrow Wilson is kind of, you know, not kind of, he's rather, uh, racist towards, uh, African-Americans, but also develops kind of brings up hatred towards know non-anglophone immigrants particularly the germans um but for the most part interesting right. i didn't i didn't realize that i so the yes were the irish were they i mean i'm sure it was like your mileage may vary but were they did they tend to be part of the clan or targeted by the clan uh targeted i would say interesting so for instance in there's also been multiple waves of the clan so i like the the, the clan that restarts up in the 20th century is not the same as the so yeah that makes sense right anyway go on and so interestingly there is a uh i know someone who knows someone who's working on this guy's canonization case but in birmingham in i believe 1920 a irish catholic priest is shot and killed by a methodist minister who is also a member of the clan um and the minister surprise the surprise yeah. so the uh, priest had married the minister's daughter uh, she had converted to catholicism without the guy without her father knowing um she had married um a puerto rican uh i want to say immigrant because puerto Rico is part of the u.s but anyway a puerto rican uh catholic Native, or yeah. who was you know come to birmingham work so they get married mm -hmm. the dad gets mad he shoots he shoots the uh the priest 
believe it's Father James Coyle, um, and his trial, he gets off. Uh, you know, he's let go because he basically pleads insanity. Um, and one of the defenders, and so the Ku Klux Klan. I mean, he sounds insane. Yeah, so the Ku Klux Klan pays for his defense, and one of the, okay. one of his lawyers defending him, who is the only non-Klan lawyer, um, but he goes on he goes on to join the Klan, and that is future Supreme Court Judge uh, Hugo Black. Mm-hmm. So that's an aside, but which, it's, like, it's like it's like John, John English is Irish, Hugo Black, Black is a white supremacist. supremacist. We, yeah, the irony, yeah. the irony in these, right? Anyway. Yeah, and so what you have in the late 19th century, so especially like 1870s and 1880s, is you start to see huge waves of immigration by from European Catholics who aren't from Ireland. So this is when you start to see a lot of Italian, the, the Italians, yeah, the Italians. Um, you start to see a lot in eventually Eastern Europeans. They start to come over in larger and larger numbers. But what you what ha- what happens is that when they come in, rather than how the Irish got here, and there were no the Irish Catholics, and there were you know basically no Catholic communities, and so they got Irish priests, and Irish bishops, and Irish cardinals to mm-hmm. take care of them. So they got people from their own kind of cultural background. These new groups, they don't have that, and so you have Irish because the church is already here right. so it's not like we're we're in some territory that doesn't have a bishop it's like no you're you live here this is your bishop bishop uh you know Mick uh leprechaun or whatever. <laughs> yeah, so right, I was trying to think of a stereotypical right. name it didn't work right right and so, okay go on and so you like you have you know Italians in New York who you know they don't speak English very well if at all and so you have this is like when um uh, St. Francis Cabrini comes over um, is because you have these Italian, you know, immigrant communities. They don't have priests or bishops who, from their cultural background who know their language, um, and they don't. The immigrants don't know English very well, and so you see, you know, the church is a not exactly a welcoming environment for them in many ways. I mean, in some ways it is. You see through people like you know St. Cabrini and others. You see, you know, soup kitchens, schools. Um, homes, all these types so of things. They're, so they're kind of seeing, seeing themselves, themselves along more national lines than they don't see like their shared Catholicism with the immigrants. They kind of subordinate that to their the differences in in race and nationality, and culture and stuff. Right, exactly. And, and so, culture, okay. In this, in many cases, ends up very poorly. Um, I believe it's in either Milwaukee or Minnesota around the turn of the 20th century, maybe by the 1920s, um, there is a group of Ruthenian Catholics. So they're from Ukraine, Eastern Europe, Russia type area. They come over and they actually get into a huge spat with the car- with the bishop or the cardinal. Um, might be in Milwaukee or it might be in Minneapolis, one of those kind of upper Midwestern cities. And so their, their you know right is recognized by the church as legitimate like okay you can say mass in this way you can use this music right use so it, they're, like, they're eastern right catholics right right but the you know the bishop at the time doesn't recognize that and so basically he more or less he cracks down on them and you know they have to worship in the way he wants and so this ultimately leads to a schism and so you have this group this kind of ruthenian group break off and form, try and form their own sect more or less within the church it's actually a very sad case where you see and this is 
you know, something that's quite common, unfortunately, is that Irish Catholic, uh, you know, Irish American priests and bishops have a lot of conflict with non-American or non-Irish uh, laity. And so it's unfortunately... Okay. And so when they encounter Eastern, Eastern Catholics, they have the tendency to try to, try to force sort of Latin practices onto them? Right, right, exactly. Or it, it doesn't even have to be Latin practices. It just has to be, you know, differences in language. Uh, with the That's true, because like, like Ireland, Irish Catholicism is, it's, is it's kind of a specific thing. So like even the Italians would probably seem strange if you, would, if you were like in a paradigm where you'd only experience kind of Irish American Catholicism. Right, exactly. It has a very particular character that can be somewhat... It's all fast, no feast. Not anymore, Not anymore but, you know. Yeah, I've never... So, like, I, I've always heard that, but I've never quite understood, you know, why Irish Catholics, Irish-American Catholics are always seen as, uh, yeah, like you said, all fast and no feast. Like, why are they always so blue and dour, you know, down all the time? It's, it's Their humors are off balance. <laughs> um, no, I don't know. I've just always heard that, too. I, I, assume, it's, I assume it's inherited from from the from like anglicanism and protestant like it like if you look at um just you know the the main reforms in england when it became protestant was to just make all the churches like ugly and, and empty and i assume that just that spirit just was hard to escape if you were you know in the anglosphere like if you existed in that sphere right and i'm sure somebody will say something about jansenism but i'm not even gonna you know even begin to that I don't know how that's controversial. So we won't talk about Jansenism. Yes, I, I do not want to talk about Jansenism. Um, what's funny is I, I often get Jansenism mixed up with uh, Jainism, which is from India. And so for a while I had them conflated in my head and it made for uh, some very weird interactions on Twitter. Um, but anyway, so you see basically by the early, by say like 19-teens, 1920s, the church in America has become more and more institutionalized. And they've continued to try and show that they are good, honest, you know, hardworking Americans. Um, and so the U.S. Catholic Church has some of its own flair and flavor to it. Um, but it's also still very, very Irish. You know, all, a lot of priests and bishops are born in Ireland and immigrate. Um, or they're from Irish families where their parents immigrated. Um, that sort of thing. And so what happens is that eventually you start to see the integration as, and this is kind of one of the big sociological points I wanted to make and that I think got lost on some people, um, is that when, you know, all immigrant groups eventually assimilate into the U.S. You know, it's a big melting pot or what have you. So all these immigrant groups start to assimilate, especially the Irish. So they start to see themselves as more and more American. Um, and so the Irish particularly in places like New York and Boston, they um, start to move up the ranks in secular civil society. Um, so they, they're not, they don't live, you, you, Catholics or immigrants don't really live in the ghetto anymore. So it's basically this period of emptying out the ghetto of the assimilation of these immigrants into American mainstream society. And so as <clears throat> they become more accepted into society, they don't want Catholicism to seem like it's weird. You know what I mean? They want it to seem like, oh, it's just an Amer another American denomination. And so what, particularly after the Second World War, what becomes important is that Americans have this idea that, you know, we just want you to be religious. We don't really care if you're Protestant, if you're Catholic, if you're Jewish, what denomination Protestant you are. As long as you're religious and a good person, like, that's what's important to us. 
And so in some ways you see a loss of Catholic distinctiveness, if that makes sense. I mean, I think that still permeates. I mean, if you look at um, like the ideas, even in conservative circles in America, like the Benedict Option and Rod Dreher, there's this kind of, you know, you can be Protestant or Orthodox or Catholic in these little Benedict Option um, communities. And it's like, you know, there, it, it does become clearly no longer about the religion and like the, the distinct, it becomes part of, we're, we're part of this club type thing. Right. And so what you have happen is that you have all of in, as immigrants, particularly the Irish immigrants, are integrated into American society, they get into political positions of power. You know, they create these political machines, especially in New York, most famously with Tammany Hall, where they get their friends and, you know, there are people from their community. They, you know, if you get elected mayor, you get a lot of people jobs. Um, and so they really start to move up into society. And something that happens is, um, and this I might have to talk in generalities a bit through here and as all with all the stuff there's a chance that you know i'm wrong and so somebody could know more than me on it but you see the church and church positions unfortunately become a nut just another type of position for people within the community you know within the irish american community or what, what or the italian american community what have you just another position for them to enter to like oh you know we'll make sure that little billy you know, he's our firstborn son. He has a political future. Let's get him involved in working at City Hall because maybe one day he'll be mayor or comptroller or something. And then little Timmy, our second son, you know, let's get him involved in the police force. And maybe one day he'll rise up to be a precinct commander or even the police chief. And then, oh, little Johnny, well, you know, let's send him to the priesthood. You know, he may or may not want to, but we don't care. And so it just be kind of came... Okay. If that makes if that makes sense, like the, yeah, the priesthood's basically just another job opening type thing to put kids into, and so you okay. yeah, like an elite sort of a elite career path, right? Exactly, because you start to see, especially by the forties and fifties in you know, the post war era, you see bishops and cardinals starting to rub shoulders with the you know highest ranks of American society. Um, is this when, is this the, when the, the, the the comedy roast dinner, roast dinner take starts happening, happening where the, where the presidential candidates like roast each other with the cardinal? Uh, Dal Smith dinner? I think so. Yeah. 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 This okay. is when, yeah, one of the guys I'm going to talk about, good old uh, Cardinal Spellman, he, I believe he's the one who starts the, uh, he starts the Al Smith dinner. But anyway, so they, and so you have the American Catholic Church starting to gain a lot more as, it's as the laity are integrated into American society and they rise up the ranks in American society and become more, and the community itself becomes more wealthy, the American church itself also becomes more prominent, more powerful, uh, more influential, and more wealthy. And this will have, I mean, you know, the church having power and wealth is always a good thing, all right, for the most part. But this has a lot of, this has a huge negative impact on the American church over the next few decades. Because what happens after World War II is that while Europe is in ruins um, and the Vatican is basically broke, the American church, as the United States is very well off and rich compared to the rest of the world, so too is Mm -hmm. the Catholic church in America. And so the Catholic church in America has a ton of financial power, and that financial power can buy you basically semi-independence. 
it's you know more or less how oh who is the guy who founded the legionnaires of christ was that uh marseille marseille yeah he yeah, yeah he um gets basically one of the reasons that some within the Curia turned a blind eye towards him is because of the financial power he has. He shows up in the 1940s when Italy's in ruins and the Vatican's almost broke. He shows up with huge stacks of cash. And so that buys him a lot of leeway with certain influential people. <clears throat> and so... Which, I mean, yeah, that tends mm-hmm. to, uh, like, certain, certain influential people, like, like doing, a lot, doing a lot of work there. Right, right. <laughs> well, I'm giving... The, well, I, just, just to say yeah. Korea officials will kind of hide things from uh, other high-ranking people and so kind of obfuscate for them. Anyway, so, you know, you've the United States, the church in the U.S. is, at this time, in the 1940s and 1950s, is very powerful. It has a lot of money. Um, it's rubbing shoulders with powerful Americans, you know, non-Catholic Americans. Uh, there are a lot of laity in very high-ranking positions within their cities and within, you know, state governments and even national government. Um, Mm -hmm. And you also have people who are becoming priests who probably shouldn't have become priests. And I think in bad seminary formation is not something I'm super well brushed up on, or at least the history of it. Um, But that's just kind of my general understanding of, you know, what's happening is that people are entering the priesthood who probably shouldn't have been. Either they weren't interested or for one reason or another, um, which I don't, which, I don't know that that's really ever a unique problem. problem. Like, I think, like, I think bad, bad seminary, seminary formation was, was I mean, I guess there weren't, there weren't strictly speaking seminaries, seminaries but like Brad, bad, bad priestly formation was a, a problem the church was trying to address with Council of Trent. So, I mean, that's, that's, like, an that's like an ongoing problem. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I guess it's this viewing of church, like of the priesthood and church office, not as a sacrificial calling, but as a uh, you know, just career path for you to mm-hmm. do well for yourself. Like a um, community, like a community position, basically. Right. Right. Exactly. So rather than being a ward boss or, you know, a political organizer or, mm-hmm. a, you know, city councilman or a comptroller or police precinct chief or whatever, you can be a bishop. And so that's, and so the bishops, some of them take, you know, very much see their role as I am a leader of my community time to spread the money um, like other people, you know, like the secular politicians did. And so you have a group of three or four bishops at the time uh, who all just so happen to be of Irish descent um, that I think are particularly, uh, well, I'm going to be terrible to say not very good. So, and I just want to make it clear because uh, apparently this may not have been clear when I talked about on Twitter, like the problem with them is not that they're Irish. They just just so happen to be of Irish descent, if that makes sense. Mm, sure. Right. So, like, the same thing probably mm. could happen if, like, if instead of the Irish had been Germans or instead of them had been Italians, like, or even instead of them. If had but been, like, I, I noticed it didn't happen with. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, that's because, you know, the Germans or the Italians or, you know, French or, you know, maybe even the Canadians didn't even immigrate in such large numbers at such an early stage in the U.S. church's development. But anyway, so you have, uh, like I mentioned, Cardinal Spellman, who was Cardinal of New York in uh, from 1939 to 1967. You had Cardinal Cushing, who was uh, Cardinal in Boston from 1944 to 1970. And then you had Cardinal McIntyre, 
in L.A., who was there from 1948 to 1970. And then you had uh, Cardinal Cody in Chicago, who was there from 1965 to 1982. So he, Cardinal Cody's a little bit after them. So it's really mainly... Spellman, Cushing, and McIntyre. So Spellman, or before I get to Spellman, so one thing, Cardinal Cushing. So he was very, very concerned about the church's public image. And so the Boston Archdiocese built, I don't know how many, but dozens upon dozens of new office buildings, of new churches, parishes, and especially new schools. That He thought that was you know, the way to go, rather than Stewarding, stewarding the resource another way, he wanted to show the church's wealth and power through construction. And so I forgot the exact number where I read it, but when he died and somebody else became you know, Archbishop of Boston, uh, the church was in horrible, there was in horrible financial shape with massive amounts of debt uh, because Cardinal Cushing had wrapped up so much debt in his building campaigns uh then you have when he was at he was highly involved as cardinal at the council of vatican ii and there are stories that you know he fell asleep during some of the meetings because he basically had no idea what was going on um people have also talked about at least on twitter how horrible his latin is at jfk's funeral mass but you know yeah i, yeah. I can't talk about that because i don't know latin very well so. Well, I always think, well, it's, I always fairly think it's fairly trad to not be great at that. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, yeah, that, no, that video. And then it was it's odd because they did a low mass because they didn't want to scare the Protestants. Right, right. Yeah, that that I, attitude of, oh, we don't want to spook the Protestants out is uh, very, very popular um, in... To this day. Yes. Well, yes, to this day, but especially during this time period. Um, and so then, besides him, you have Cardinal Spellman... Um, who Cardinal Spellman, one thing he did, so Archbishop Sheen basically, uh, so the U.S. government used, like they used Catholic churches to give out basically aid to people. So Cardinal Spellman gave uh, Fulton Sheen some free government milk or free government cheese or what, what have you to give out to poor people. So, he, so Sheen did that and then Spellman turned around and gave him a bill for about a billion dollars. Um, this actually led the two to have an argument that went all the way up to the Pope. And so the Pope, he ended up getting President Eisenhower involved because basically Cardinal Spellman wanted to charge uh, Fulton Sheen, you know, a million dollars for giving him free government cheese. And so that just kind of highlights, that's high, you know, more or less what Spellman was about. Um, he was the one, I believe, who instituted the Al Smith Dinner in New York, which for those of you who don't know, the Al Smith Dinner is basically where the Archbishop or Cardinal of New York and other high-ranking clergy rub shoulders with New York's finest, uh, you know, like Governor Cuomo and all those guys and basically say, hey, give us money. We'll kind of look the other way, uh, more or less, on some things. That's a little bit yeah. uncharitable of me to say, but... I mean, Kind of, sure. kind of how it works, unfortunately. So I think for the sake of time, we may have to break this up and yeah. have you back in the future. Because um, obviously there's a lot more that still happens. Right, right. Looking at the clock, I think we've got a lot of uh, material to work with as it is. Yeah. All right, before we wrap up, question. One thing that I was thinking about while I was listening to that is 
you have people who came over to America to basically, you know, free, flee Catholicism or flee the king, however you want to frame whatever they're fleeing, right? But they come here for the purpose of basically religious freedom. And uh, so Catholics come over and the Catholics are eventually, even though they hold some place in society, you know, the Irish are looked down on these people. It kind of creates this... Uh, mentality of like go along to get along or like we need to all be in it together and one of the things as I was listening to you talk about that it kind of seemed like even Catholicism was trending towards this natural progression of putting people into the priesthood not through because of the sacrifice but in order to curry favor here and there just to maintain maintain positions in society but also just to kind of maintain maintain your core group like you know at least if they're against us at least we can try and have people for us i'm not saying but that's excusable or at all good it just seemed like that was kind of the way that it was going and there was no escaping it does that make sense yeah that yeah idea? that makes sense yeah so, and so that, i guess sorry what were you gonna say well, I just, it just, that's what it struck me as is like it, I, we, we so desperately want, we think, we think Catholicism is great and we want all of our leaders to obviously perfect, be perfect. But in some sense, it just seemed inescapable that that was going to happen, especially in this country, the, you know, this country where it's like democracy and like we have to you know, everyone, everything is completely equal and we need to treat it as such. Like it just kind of seemed like it was all, it was bound to happen. Right. Yeah. So I guess if I could sum it up and I, I think your questions, like what you're saying is definitely true. I think that's a lot of what happened. So basically I think the history of us Catholicism from when Catholics first started showing up, um, in the colonial era and especially Irish in the 18, early 1800s up into even Second World War and even beyond, um, which we'll get into later, is that it's very much a history of how do we make our religion fit in the United States? How do we as Catholics fit into American political culture? Um, you know, in American, you know, when the United States is heavily Protestant, and in many cases, the United States is very anti Catholic. And so you have these people who not only are they Catholic, which a lot of people in the U.S., especially in the antebellum era, don't like, but they are also immigrants. And so the bishops and the laity try to walk a line of where do we put our heads down and just try and get along, mm -hmm. and where do we fight back and try and, you know, make room for ourselves. And oftentimes, you know, they are, they were, you know, fallible people, and sometimes they made the wrong choices, particularly like I talked about when it came to slavery and racism. Um, and so really it's all about, you know, it's a, really the story is about how Catholics attempted to find their place in American society. And ultimately, and we'll get into this when we talk some more, is that they become integrated, you know, as more or less full Americans. So they start to lose some of their distinctiveness. And unfortunately, I think some of their, you know, religious distinctiveness, you know, what makes Catholicism Catholicism, that can often be lost. And in some cases it was. Well, that, that yeah, I mean, that's kind of the pull. And I, you know, I 
want to make sure I don't be misconstrued as anti-American, but that's kind of the pull of Americanism, right? Like we're all American and we all need, we all need to first and foremost be American. Uh, And uh, to an extent, obviously with the, you know, the idea that we need to appreciate the country and we owe, you know, it is, we should be thankful that we're here, you know, all that, all that patriotic stuff, but it is the, it is kind of the, melting pot theory of like, well, we're all just kind of in it together. And I mean, obviously we are, we, from the standpoint of, we need to be good to everybody, but it certainly waters down certain aspects like the Catholicism. And again, it all, it all sounds like I'm walking close the thin line of nationalism and all that stuff, but really it just, it's just kind of more an assessment of what, it leads to as opposed to like you, I don't, I don't know what I'm trying to say. I, I, I feel like I, I'm saying, no, no, I, de- I definitely get it. You know, people, you know, they have to make choices, you know, they, everybody you know, wants to fit into mainstream society. You know, how do you do that? You know, in the ideals of the United States are, you know, if you be a good person, if you're virtuous and all of these things, like anybody, the, the people's one of the appeals of America is that anybody can be an American more or less. Right. Um, but unfortunately, like you said, that can wash out some distinctiveness and you know, that's kind of something that happens. Yeah. Yeah. So that's really all that struck me. Zach, do you have anything else before we wrap it up or. I don't, I think kind of Spencer proved my point that Catholicism was just really good and just kept getting better and better. And, <laughs> I mean, we'll have to have him back to talk about the 50s and how, how it got perfect. Right. I mean, it's basically, this is a story. Everything got great, and there's no more problems after that. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Spencer, where can people find you if you, if they want to chat with you? Um, they can find me on Twitter, at ShinyNewSquid. Um, so if you want to do that, you can hit me up there. Um, and I you know, try and be nice if you're nice, and if not, well, then I'll see you later. <laughs> All right. I like it. No right, haters. Yeah. No thanks haters, for, please. Thanks for coming on and we uh like we said we'll have more more to talk about, but uh yeah, this was great. Yeah, thanks guys. I appreciate it. I hope I uh didn't get too lost in the weeds or blab on too long. Well, that's what we're known for, so it's perfectly fine here. Oh, good. Good. Glad to hear it. I I never get I've never gotten lost in any weed ever, <laughs> so I won't start now. All right. Cool. All right. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's it, it for, for today, today gang. gang. Thanks for listening, and uh, we will talk with you all next week. All right, good talking to you guys. Talk to you all later. See you. Yep. Right, bye.